Well, I greet you this morning in the name of Jesus the Christ, the glorified Son of God. It's good to see those in worship with us, along with those who are joining us online. I always get tickled when Dr. James Johnson comes to speak on the stage. It gives our camera operators a real workout. And by the end of his presentation, I always feel a little motion sick watching him go back and forth. And boys and girls, for the children's time, uh, good luck with that today. I, I'm going to go ahead and tell you the answer. It's about a gazillion times I'm going to talk about love. Well, today we are culminating a two-part sermon series that bookends the week of St. Valentine's Day. And the title is, Love Is, Love Is Not. We're focusing on a very familiar passage of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 13. Many Christian weddings highlight a passage from the love chapter. But we saw last week that Paul is not simply talking about romantic love, but godly love. And that the Greek language that the New Testament was written in has multiple words for love. There is eros, romantic love, storge, which is family love, philia, a brotherly or sisterly love, and then agape, which is godly love. And godly love is acted out in our lives through the Holy Spirit acting in, through, and sometimes despite us. And today we're going to explore what that looks like in daily life. Our scripture lesson comes from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Amen. The Holy Spirit calls us to love others in the same way that God loves us. And we're called to emulate that in all of our relationships. Last week we heard Jesus' words at the Last Supper when he told his followers, As I have loved you, you should love one another. This is the new commandment I give you, love one another. And other people are going to know you are my disciples, my followers, if you love one another. When we love... We honor Christ's commands. When we do not love, we miss the point entirely. Love is always the default of the Christian ethic and lifestyle. If we are in doubt, love. 1 John tells us that we love because we've first been loved. And God's love, God's grace is poured into our lives, packed down, shaken together, and overflowing. And I share with you that in my mind, I imagine a terraced fountain with ever-increasing larger basins towards the ground. And God fills our lives, and then it brims and overflows into every relationship that we possess on this earth. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us what agape love looks like. And while Paul can soar to the heights of poetry the verses we heard today are very prosaic and concrete. Last week we heard eight attributes of what love is. 
Today we hear eight attributes of what love is not. Paul begins by saying, love is not envious or jealous. We don't look at the other person's possessions and scheme to have them as our own. Thou shalt not covet, may God's top ten list, because envy, jealousy, and covetousness are spiritually corrosive. They eat away at our relationship with God, with others, as well as with self. You don't get very far in the book of Genesis before you see the outcome of covetousness. Cain became outraged that God favored Abel's sacrifice over his own and murdered him out in the fields. The first record of murder was also of fratricide. Because you see those internal thoughts sometimes become external deeds. Grasping greedy thoughts can lead to grasping greedy deeds. And there's a lesson we have to learn and relearn in our lives. The grass really isn't greener on the other side of the fence. If you want green grass, you get it by tending your own pastures. The antidote, the counteragent to jealousy and envy is gratitude and contentment. Gratitude causes us to look at what we do have rather than what we don't and to say thank you. Contentment means that we are satisfied with who we are in God. There's that famous verse from Paul in Philippians when he is awaiting to be tried before Caesar and we know ultimately is martyred for the faith, he says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Secondly, love does not boast or brag. What do we have to brag about? Braggarts think of themselves as self-made men or women, that they have earned and merited all that they have. The opposite is actually true. We're not self-made men and self-made women. We are God-made men and God-made women. The first and last word of the gospel is always grace. And by definition, grace is something we have not earned, we have not merited, it is given to us freely. As God has loved us, we're called to love others. Not to be braggarts or boastful, that was part of the problem with the church in Corinth. That Paul in earlier chapters talks about all these wonderful spiritual gifts that God has given to the church, and they tended to brag to one another about how my gift, my accomplishments are better than yours. There's a reason that First and Second Corinthians take so much space in the New Testament. Paul had more issues with this church alone than all the rest of his congregations combined. And it always tickles me when we're on vacation and taking a long road trip to go by churches that have the word Corinth in their name. Either they didn't read the New Testament before they named their congregation, or they knew their congregation very well. But Paul told the church in Corinth, as it is written, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. And he was quoting Jeremiah chapter 9 that says, 
this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom. Let not the strong boast of their strength. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have an understanding to know me, and that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Thirdly, love is not proud. Some translations say arrogant or conceited. I like the King James Version on this one. It says love is not puffed up. At the center of the English word pride is the letter I. And that pretty much sums it up. You cannot practice agape love when you're egocentric, selfish, and narcissistic. We are called to see the other in the same way as we see ourselves, as God's beloved children. The opposite of pride is humility. Humility means I see you as I see myself as a beloved child of God, as a brother or sister in Jesus Christ. Now, there's a subtle danger here, and it's reflected in a phrase we have in English of false humility. And when we're trying not to be prideful, it's real easy to instead practice false humility. I love how Frederick Beekner defines this term. He said, humility is often confused with saying, you're not much of a bridge player when you know you really are. Conscious or unconscious, this type of humility is gamesmanship. True humility does not mean thinking ill of yourself but of not thinking of yourself much differently from the way you are apt to think about others. I love this next part. It is the capacity for being no more and no less pleased when you play your own hand well than when somebody else does. Next, love does not dishonor others. Love is not unbecoming, unseemly, or improper. We're getting down to basics here. The golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. One translation reads, love is not rude. Which sounds a little bit prosaic and pedestrian when you're talking about agape love. But I want you to think for a moment, what is at the heart of rudeness? The heart of rudeness is I am more important than you. Therefore, I should get to go first in line. When those DOT signs say that this lane is going to end in half a mile, I just keep in it while everybody else is merging right. Yes, I've seen you. I'd get the bigger piece of the pie. I can speak over you because what I have to say is much more important than what you have to say. We're called to treat others with respect. That's kind of baseline for love and relationship, isn't it? To honor others, to be polite. Some here will remember when uh, Robert Fulgham became famous in the United States for an essay he wrote that then became a book entitled, uh, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Think about some of the basic aspects of love. To share everything, play fair, don't hit people 
Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that don't belong to you. And say you're sorry when you hurt someone. And it is still true, no matter how old you are, when you go out into the world, it's best to hold hands and to stick together. The next attribute is love is not self-seeking. It doesn't insist on its own way. It is other-oriented rather than self-oriented. There was a Jewish theologian named Martin Buber who wrote about human relationships and divided them into two major categories. Our relationships are either I-it or I-thou. I-it relationships see the other person as a thing, a thing to be utilized and used for my own purposes. I-thou relationships see the other person as a person, a son or daughter of God, one that Jesus loved so much that he went to cross to die for. And in all of our relationships, both with individuals as well as with groups, we treat as I it or I thou. Love is not easily angered. This is one that trips up a lot of people. And we have all sorts of rationalizations and excuses. Uh, let me say gently, anger and losing your temper and having an uncontrollable temper is not a genetic predisposition. It's a choice. Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, and part of what he describes as a natural outgrowth of dwelling in God's presence is a spirit of self-control. We control our emotions rather than allowing our emotions to control us. Having said that, there are some things God's people ought to get angry about, that we ought to get into some good trouble, to be troubled by injustice and inequity. Jesus went into the temple and drove out the money changers with righteous indignation. We too are called to be change agents, voices of prophecy in the world about us. Love keeps no record of wrongs. This is accounting language, Excel spreadsheet terminology. And there may well be a little emotional CPA inside all of us that keeps track of the things that people have done to us. In premarital counseling, uh, one of the things I talk about with couples is fighting. And I'll say to them, every couple fights. Any couple that tells you they do not fight will lie to you about other things as well. And we talk about fair and unfair fighting. But one of the pieces of advice I give is you've got to let the past be the past. If you're going to say, till death us do part, and you're going to celebrate one day your 50th anniversary, do you still want to be arguing about things that occurred when you were dating? To let those things go. And we all carry grudges, and we stir up those embers of bitterness and of hatred and of being wronged. But depending upon the translation, Jesus said, forgive not seven times, but 70 times, 
or 70 times seven times. Whichever translation you pick, forgiveness is easier than math. Let it go. Give it to God. Love does not delight in evil. That sounds awful. Who would delight in something bad happening to someone else? There's a German word for this that has no English equivalent, schadenfreude. It means taking delight in somebody else's misfortune. We'd never do that, would we? But it gets expressed in phrases like, he got what he deserved. She had that coming to her. What goes around comes around. Karma's a real bear, isn't it? I'm going to make a very minor confession of my own sin. You know the difference between minor and major sin? Minor's what I do. Major's what you do. You probably saw the news that Tom Brady has retired from NFL football again for Lent. I must confess, I like to watch the Bucks play in football games. And the only reason I watched was to see Tom Brady get sacked. I still hold a grudge from the Super Bowl. We have more serious incidents of that as well. Love does not delight in evil. It rejoices in the truth. Eight different things that love is not. But I want to get back to the first few verses of Corinthians that we skipped over today to get to verse 4. And I find these verses convicting. Because if you are like I am, I look back on my own Christian journey, and on my best days, I've tried to act in love towards God and towards others. And on my worst days, if I did approximate something that looked like love, it was out of a sense of obligation and expectation. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Without love, it means nothing. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 discussed all these amazing spiritual gifts that God had given the people in Corinth. A prophecy, of wisdom, of kindness, gift of helping. But at the end of the chapter, he said, let me show you a more excellent way. And we can practice all these other gifts... And if they are not undergirded and informed with love, they mean nothing. A more excellent way to love as God has loved. Over four decades of pastoral ministry, I have attended more than my fair share of funerals. And sometimes, in the midst of the service, I find myself daydreaming a little bit about my own service. Have you ever thought what it'd be like, kind of like Tom Sawyer, to go to your own funeral? See who was there, what was said? You know, in my mind, I see a, a crowd of thousands weeping. And the person who is speaking says, yes, Bill died at 100 years of age after receiving the Nobel Prize for peace, finishing a marathon and having breakfast with the Pope. 
And then I'm always humbled by Louis Grizzard's observation. He said, the size of your funeral, no matter how beloved you are, will depend upon whether it is raining or not. <laughs> and then if I carry it a little bit further, I think, what do I really want somebody to say about me? And at the end of the day, what I hope they say is that it was a life lived in love. That he was a good child who honored his parents. He was a faithful husband who loved his spouse. That he poured his life into his children. That he was beloved by his granddaughter. That he was a pastor who served faithfully in the life of the church. Because everything else fades away. Bishop Lindsay Davis served the North Georgia Annual Conference for 12 years, and I heard him preach on this passage once, and he said at the end of each day, I lay in my bed and ask a simple question. Did I love well today? And at the end of each day, at the end of each life, that's the question that needs to be answered. Did I love well, because these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Let us pray. A love divine, all loves excelling, joy of heaven to earth come down. We gather this day and worship first and foremost to celebrate your love for us. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. That proves your love toward us. And then you call us. You inspire us. You empower us to love others as you have loved us. Forgive us for the times we fall short. When we hear the words that love is and we neglect those practices. And for when we hear love is not and we embrace those very things we ought to reject. Forgive us. Teach us to love as you love. And at the end of the day, may be said of our lives that we loved well. In Christ's name we pray it. Amen.